We didn't start out to do that. Our initial thought was that the long tail of, of startups and, and those things would be where all of the traction would be, and that the enterprise would take a long time to catch up. And the reverse happened. It was a lot of contention inside the organization to figure out, like, should we offer a product to the enterprise? And if we should, in what shape? When you think about a lot of enterprises, there will be enterprises who are willing to accept your software without the enterprise features. And you need to find them. You're listening to the Enterprise Ready Podcast, a show aiming to change the enterprise software narrative from how to sell to enterprises to how to build for enterprises. We'll interview industry experts and enterprise software founders as we break through the jargon, establish a common vernacular, and share the lessons learned from building the world's best enterprise software. Hi, I'm Grant Miller, creator of Enterprise Ready and founder and CEO of Replicated, where we power the world's best enterprise software. The Enterprise Ready Podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. In this episode, we interview Adam Jacob, founder and CTO of Chef. Adam has been building Chef for over 10 years, and during that time, he's learned a lot about how to deliver software that enterprises love. He has an incredible perspective, and I'm so glad to have him on as one of our first guests. Great. Adam, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Really excited to talk to you and, and dive into some of these conversations. You and I have had a lot of conversations over the last few years about enterprise features and how to build enterprise software, and I, and I really looked up to you as one of my mentors. So what I'd love to do is just kind of dive in and sort of understand a little bit about your background as like an enterprise software guy. Sure. Well, let's see. My background is an enterprise software guy. I, um, I'm the CTO and co-founder of Chef, and Chef is configuration management software, in case you don't know. And so I've spent the last 10 years building that software and building that company, and the people who use it most and love it most are the large enterprise. And before that, I was a systems administrator, and I ran both like customer-facing sites and the web technology and that sort of Web 1.0 era, sort of bumping up against the Web 2.0 era, if that dates me too much to talk about Web 2.0. Do people think about Web 2.0 anymore? Yeah, I think it's still a thing. It's probably like Web 3.5 yeah. now or whatever. But you know, I, I spent a lot of time in the enterprise doing both internal corporate-facing work. So I ran like corporate infrastructure. So I did like identity management and meta directories, if people remember meta directories and and a lot of that stuff. You know, I built automated systems for assigning desks and phones and all of that stuff. Oh, so you were the IT admin? Yes, I was the IT admin, but I was building the automation systems that let you run, you know, three or four or five thousand person enterprises and like thinking about all the corporate infrastructure. Oh, so cool. like it's sort of a mix of the web facing stuff and sort of corporate facing infrastructure. Well, I mean, so, so tell the, that quick story of like kind of how, you know, because Chef evolved out of a, a consulting. Group yeah. you're doing right. So just like tell that story about how it evolved and then started to get adoption and how eventually enterprises started to use it and pay you money. Yeah, for sure. So I mean, we started out like I said, I was a systems administrator, and so the people that I worked for sort of didn't care too much about me. <laughs> like there were a couple of moments where I made it clear that like I was doing a lot of really good work for people who just didn't value the work that I was doing really at all. And so I called my buddy Nathan Haney Smith and said, Hey, you know. I work for these people who don't care about me. You work for IBM, and they don't really care about you either. So how about we like quit our jobs, and we'll go be consultants. And what we'll do is we'll build automation for startups. This was right in the birth of EC2, so EC2 was brand new, and you know Puppet was a big deal, starting to become a big deal. And what we decided we would do is we would do fully automated infrastructure for startups. So you could pay us a flat fee, and we would automate everything. So we did... You know, obviously configuration management, but we would do identity, app deployment, monitoring and trending, logging, metrics. With a focus on startups, like yeah, with a focus on startups. So you would, you know, let's say you were this time, like it was this was the dawn of Facebook apps, right? So like I like was one of our very first customers, Um, Avo, who just I think just now exited. So they were like a legal startup where they did like they would connect you with a lawyer um, was sort of their thing. Um, Zeusk, which did online dating on Facebook, if you remember Zeusk. And so they would pay us a flat fee that was pretty large. That would cover the initial automation. 
And the goal was that we would just be really great at that first pass, and then you would pay us a retainer like lawyers to just sort of maintain the automation, and we would get all this like economy of scale out of maintaining all this automation for all of these all these customers. What we learned was that you know any individual customer we had was happy with the automation because it worked for them, but they didn't care at all, obviously, about whatever the generic thing was that was going to let you manage all the rest of your customers. Right? They had their problem, they wanted that thing solved, and then they moved on. And the, the technology we were using just didn't work, um, and so it wasn't as fun as we hoped it would be. And we weren't getting the economies of scales we wanted. We, we could do it really fast, so like the fastest we ever automated in an organization was 24 hours. So from signed contract to we completely automated everything they did end-to-end was a day. Wow. Yeah, it was great. Uh, we were super good at it. But what happened next was we had to decide, you know, are we going to keep being consultants or not? And the real question there was, well, only if we can figure out how to make the core premise work, which is, can we get so efficient and so good at managing all this variation that it makes sense to do? And so that's when I started working on Chef, because what I was trying to figure out was, how do I manage not one company, but thousands of them uh, all at once? Which, if you think about it, is a lot like the enterprise. Mm. You know, if you go to a big automobile manufacturer, there are let's call it six thousand, eight thousand, ten thousand applications inside that organization that range from you know off the shelf stuff, Oracle and SAP, to COTS applications that they bought from vendors that vendors built for them to spec, but they don't have the source code for. There's stuff they built themselves that they have source code for. They've been deploying over time. All of those things map to multiple lines of business. You know, you think about GE. You know, GE poops out a new billion-dollar business every couple of years. You know, just like oh, how about we go into wind, you know, or microwaves or whatever, and you just what pop is just, now it's a billion-dollar thing. They were in consumer, the biggest consumer lending business in the world for a minute. You know, so that initial consulting premise, which started with startups, it turned out that what we were actually doing was building the thing that the enterprise needed to manage all of that variation and complexity. So you were building a tool that you, at your consulting firm, could yeah. use to manage all these other customers that you were going to have. And yes. then you, it turns out that like that thing that you built to manage this huge amount of scale and all these different applications yes. at this abstracted layer was exactly the tool that an enterprise that has you know a multinational like GE pooping out a new billion-dollar line of business needed to control all their different software and applications. You got it. Yeah. Oh wow, that's amazing. But it was we didn't start out to do that. Our initial thought was that the long tail of of startups and and those things would be where all of the traction would be. Right. And that the enterprise would take a long time to catch up. And the reverse happened. I mean, the long tail happened for Chef, don't get me wrong. Like there's a lot of people who use Chef and are not giant companies. But like the enterprise needed Chef. And so they showed up very quickly and were like, hey, this thing that you built, you know, our initial go-to-market was like a hosted platform and all of those things. And they were like, hey, this thing that you built, like, we want it, but we want it like on-prem to run GE, you know, the metaphorical, the platonic GE, right. not the specifics of GE. <laughs> so when you developed this, obviously you built this piece of like business logic that can manage all these applications, but the thing that it probably didn't do is like, hey, you know, log in with LDAP and like right. do this audit log. And so like how did it you did just none of those things. Yeah. Like so how did you first discover those requirements and figure out like, oh, if the enterprise is going to adopt it, we like yeah. need to lean into some of these features? And like, what did that process look like? Like, I was super ugly and deeply painful. So, like, you know, we started out our original business model was we were going to run a hosted service. So, we, the Chef's open source, and so we had an open source product, and then we had uh, a hosted service that you could pay us for that we would just run all of the Chef stuff for you, right? And we were just a, we were a lot ahead of our time, you know, in terms of people's willingness to use a hosted service to run their configuration management. If you are a bank, or if you're you know a GE, or you know anything that matters, this was ten years ago, twelve years ago, you know. So that was crazy, a little bit, a decade ago. And so you know what they wanted was was it to be on prem. And so first we spent a long time saying we don't do that. You know, like mm. our business is hosted, and if you want these good things, I've then you heard need that to. Before. You know, you just you got to come. You you must come to the to me. You come to the mountain. You know, and come to the future. Come to the and, future. And Join us here in the future. Yeah, it's where you belong. Use my application that I'll host that controls all of your servers. You know, and and look to give that platform credit, like it made a goodly enough amount of money to get to a place where that was a problem, but it didn't make enough money 
or be strong enough to convince those organizations that that's actually what they should do. And so we had this, it was a lot of contention inside the organization to figure out like, should we offer a product to the enterprise? And if we should, in what shape? Like, is it on-prem? Is it the open source software? Is it all open source? Is it proprietary? How much of it's proprietary? How much is not? Which features go where? Are you building a platform that could extend into multiple products? Are you building one product that targets the enterprise? And then how do you knock down that list of part one is just, I built this hosted platform. Yes, there was always an open source component you could run on-prem, but it wasn't very nice to run because my focus wasn't there. My focus was running this hosted platform. But now I need to take my hosted platform and I need to make it runnable in the enterprise. It needs to be easy to install. It needs to integrate with their identity systems. It needs to have things like logging and troubleshooting. It's disconnected, so I can't get the telemetry I got out of my hosted platform. So how do I deal with those problems? You know, the list was really long. So, and I think the way we tackled that list once we got over the internal struggle of just like, should we at all, you know, was to find those customers who were willing to engage with you when we said we were going to do it. And then just take down that list of what their requirements were and build to that. And you know, over the years, I've sort of learned that that there was some things there that were glorious, and that like that's a really good approach. And what you're doing is sort of table stakes uh, stuff when it's just a feature you have to have in order to get it in the door. It's fine to just show up and be like, well, what gets it in the door? You know, it must log to syslog or that. You know, thou shalt log in with Active Directory, mm-hmm. and you're like, great, check. Done. Active Directory. Like you don't need to like innovate. You know, you just need to do it. In some cases, you know, I would argue around things like installation, things like license management, things like an entitlement, things like centralized access control, software updates. Like you kind of do need to be a little innovative. You know, it's not enough to just ask customers what they want because what they want is probably not what you want to deliver. Interesting. So sounds like you basically had this product that was getting was getting pulled. From enterprises, right? Mm-hmm. So you were like, you had it, you were offering it, and that your early customers were more startups, and you were doing a hosted version, mm-hmm. and you were feeling this pull from the enterprise. Yep, they were they, using my open source software. They're using the open source stuff yeah. and saying like, "Hey, we want, I want to pay you. We want to pay you, and we want more features that we need in order to like." Yeah, but in order to pay you, I have to run it on prem, right. and I need the following list of features, and I need you to sell me a support contract. And we were like, mm, "I'll sell you a support contract over here in hosted land." And they were like, mm, I don't want that. I want it to run on in my house. Uh, I am the federal government. I am an agency that requires security clearance to speak to me. And they're like, turns I shall, out. I, it turns out I'm not going to use your hosted configuration management platform. Yeah. It's just not going to go down like that. Now, maybe it's going to go down like that now if you're AWS. They might call you up and be like, yo, AWS, can I just use your hosted magical AWS sauce if you build me one for me? Right, and they're like, sure. Turns out it might be a, a bit easier to get the assurance that you need against the you know whatever nearly trillion dollar company that Amazon is. Indeed, versus uh, right. How many people at Chef at this point? Maybe right, we're 50, sub three hundred. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This is early days. I'm saying. Oh, early, early days. Chef. Oh, it was sub twenty. Yeah. So it's yeah. like yeah, your twenty people are probably not going to get the same level of assurance that the no. yeah the team yeah. At, at Amazon yeah. can get. Not even close. Okay, so then. You have these early enterprise customers who are using your software and using it because it's open source. That's great that they even get to use it. Now they're Mm -hmm. asking and pulling more of these features in. And you sort of find the ones that are willing to be these design partners around, like, what does the enterprise offering actually look like? And they help list out these features. Yeah, I mean, there's sort of two things. I'm sure there's other ways to do it. But the only way I know how to do it is you find people who want what you have. So you know they want Chef and they want configuration management and they want to you know use it inside their enterprise, and your product doesn't quite match what they need, and so you say to those people, "Have I got a deal for you? You'll pay me for the product. I'll make it do what it needs by sitting in your house. Like I will get on a plane, I will come to where you are, and I will sit in your house, and we will do this thing together. Like I will stick to you like glue until this thing works on the other side, and in return or beforehand, ideally." You are going to pay me for the privilege, and if and if it doesn't work out, you don't renew. You know, like you just stop paying me. And the trick there is that it's not a services contract; it's product. You're buying the product, and I'm going to come to your house, and I'm going to make the product be the right thing. You know, that worked with not just like the early enterprise customers; it worked with Facebook. You know, like we went to Facebook, and I sat in Facebook's house, and I was like, "We are going to make Facebook run Chef. I'm not leaving till we're done." And through that engagement model of saying to the enterprise, "Look," You know, because one thing you hear all the time from the enterprise, like a hundred percent of the enterprise, says to you, 
we are the most hard, most unique, worst place ever in the history of man. Like we are the most garbage town of garbage towns. Like we are the worst human beings and the worst software place that has ever lived. And so they believe, rightful or wrong, that they are the most complicated, worst environment. You know, you hear a hundred times over, every single one you talk to goes, our firewalls are the worst firewalls that ever firewalled. And like, no, they're not. Everyone's firewall's garbage. Yeah. Like it's the exact same, you have the same proxy problem every other company that set up a stupid proxy has. It's not unique. But everybody thinks it's unique because our suffering is always personal, you know? And so when you say to someone, you're right, you are unique, you do have unique problems, and I'm going to sit in your house until we conquer this hill, and in return you will pay me, usually they say yes. Because the one thing that they know in their heart is that they can't solve the problem, otherwise they would do it without you. I find part of the challenge is just getting people to even commit to that time with you to be like, yes, we'll sit down with you, we'll have you in our house, and you can come and learn about all of our problems and like build us the software that solves it. Like, How do you even sort of, like, do you think because you were open source that they felt like, okay, these guys know what they're doing, they can sort of help us get there? Yeah, for me it was open source, and it was because the way that we grew the open source community was by being out in the world not talking about Chef, but instead talking about what it's like to be out in the world. So like, you know, if you go look at the talks that I have given over the last decade, very few of them are about Chef, you know, or about Habitat. Like there's, there's, there's a handful. But I talk a lot about what it's like to do this work, what it's like to be in the enterprise, what it's like to try to transform, what it's like when you're in the big web, what it's like to run operations at speed or at scale. And because I talk about those things, that gives you the credibility to be able to talk about the technology, that when you say to someone, and I can solve this for you, they believe you. Whereas if I showed up and all I did was was say, I have this technology, you've never seen it, you don't know me, you don't trust me, you, have no, you got nothing about me or anybody else. In those early product stages, you know, it is more about you than it is about the software or the business. Later on, it's about the business. Like, Chef doesn't need me to do that anymore. You know, I mean, I, I still go give talks or whatever, but that's not how Chef gets leads. It's not how the enterprise shows up. It's not how they arrive in my house. But when on the day one, it absolutely was, you know, you had to go to a conference and you had to fish for a human and be like, what do you do? And they were like, well, I'm the blah, blah, blah at, you know, huge oil and gas company. And you're like, tell me everything about oil and gas. So fascinated and like listen to the problem and find your way in. It's the same thing we did as consultants. It might just be that that's my DNA more than it is that that's like a repeatable motion, but I kind of think it's repeatable. So, was Jesse part of the company at this point? Was he involved? Jesse, Jesse Robbins, Robbins, yeah. yeah. So, Jesse partner. Robbins is my, is, was the founding CEO of Chef. And yes, so Jesse came in a little later on. So, Jesse was running, not later on in Chef, he was there at the creation of the yeah. company. But um, we had started creating Chef, the prototype. And as consultants, we tried to recruit Jesse because he was working for O'Reilly and he had worked for Amazon right. and he was starting Velocity. And uh, he had written this post about how the best in the world could automate their infrastructure. I don't remember what the timeline was. It was like three months or six months or something. He had like a fake graph that he drew, you know, that made the whole thing look really official about like how long it would take you to automate all your stuff. And John Willis, people know John Willis, a DevOps person, big in Tivoli community back in the day, uh, back in this era, who had just started looking at this newfangled automation stuff. I had just been on a podcast with him where we had told the story about that customer that we did uh, in an hour. And so he commented on Jesse's blog post and was like, dude, these dudes in Seattle can do it in a day. And Jesse was like, you're lying. It was basically what he said in this blog post. And I responded, like, super not lying. Like, we can absolutely do it in a day. Here's our website. Like, we crushed this number that you have made up out of nowhere, <laughs> sir. And so then we like met for coffee and we tried to recruit him to our consulting company. And he was like, I don't want to join your stupid consulting company. But if you come up with a product, like, give me a call. And so when we built Chef, we called Jesse and we were like, hey, I have this product. And Jesse was the one who was like, that's a dope product. We should take venture capital and we should like build a business that does a thing. Because I was a systems administrator, you know, like no one funds Adam Jacob in the day that I wrote Chef. Like, like I, my highest title was team lead. Oh, wow. You know, like I'm a systems administrator. Like I still am really. I play all this other stuff on TV. So, so it was Jesse who made the company a company. It wasn't wasn't me. So what I think is interesting here, right, is that there's really two paths by which you guys were able to get 
some respect in the enterprise and get in the door and get that ability to sit down with the team and understand their problems. Number one was you created this open source product yep. that got adoption, right? Number two really was Jesse's background because Jesse, like you think about it today, you know, Jesse came out of Amazon and had created oh, yeah. things like Game Day and a bunch of other yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, we like, dined out on Jesse's know. resume for years. Yeah, exactly, right? And so, I still kind of dine out on Jesse's resume probably. It's probably and, weird for Jesse every now and again. And I think a lot of times when you see, at least on the you know enterprise infrastructure, you know, a lot of software companies, like the way that they get into the room is the founders have a background from Google or they solve this problem right. or from Facebook yeah. where they created a similar thing or from one of these companies where they built the internal tool yeah. at that company and now they're going to like rebuild it and take it to the rest right. of the world. Yes. But it's interesting that you actually took both paths because you created the open source version and you kind of did this and then you also got Jesse and you kind of had the background. But it's really interesting when you think about that early go to market, like, you know, some type of thing to get you credibility and in the door and get people to trust you with their problem that's related to your problem is really important. Yeah, for sure. And I, my belief is that that credibility comes from your empathy to the problem more than it comes from like. There's a business model conversation that I think is really interesting about like you know there's the, about open source software and sort of the spread approach of like getting as many people to use the software as possible and then you monetize some small subset of them in a particular way. And like that's an interesting and valuable conversation. But I think you know when you think about how do I start, how do I get to a place where I get that first enterprise customer? My belief is that you get that customer by being out in the world and being more involved in their problem than they are. You know, being more fired up about how you're going to solve whatever the thing is than they are. And I don't know that like me today believes that I probably could have done it without the resume. Not that I'm glad I didn't. Do you know what I mean? Like I love sure. Jesse, and the reason that like my entire life has been irrevocably changed because Jesse Robbins had the grace to come into it and do what he did. So do not misunderstand me. Like I'm so thankful that that's what happened. You know, do I think it's possible to do that where you're more me and less Jesse? And I think the answer to that, in hindsight, is is yes. The thing that's required, though, and that's hard to get is the perspective that you're good at the work. Like it's just really hard to know when you can't see it that you're like in the top whatever percentile at whatever the thing is that you do out in the world. And so there's this weird mix of ego and hubris and a bunch of things to go you know to go to a conference or whatever and be sitting across from the person who runs deployment or security or operations at some fortune you know 3000 global 3000 company and be like I got this hold my beer let's talk you know like that's just hard and so i think I think you could do it that way. Like, I think you could actually get to a place where you could take those skills out and you could like engage in an authentic way in those conversations and get people fired up about what you're doing. But it's hard. Yeah. For, for me, it was always just, uh, I would have the hubris to go and talk to that person and they'd be like, oh, talk to Mark. Mark, <laughs> Mark's my co founder, who's the incredibly smart person behind right. everything. Yeah. Complicated. Let's, and so, let's talk about the details. Yeah. Mark's got the details. Yeah. It's like, we can do everything you ever need. Mark's got this. Mark is going, yeah. and Mark will write the software. Yeah. yeah, you know, I look. It's always easier with a buddy. Right. So, like, like it's there's no question that it's easier to not go alone because there's a million hard moments. I think those first customers, though, and still today, like even with Chef, you know, I've built more product than just Chef at Chef, right? And taken those things into market, and it's just as hard. You know, like even with everything that we built and the customers that we have and all of those things, it's just as hard to build a product figure out what it is, show it to people, figure out whether it's the right shape, figure out how to talk to people about it, how to distill its value, what features go where, how do you, you know, like it's just hard. Let's let's dive into that a little bit because I think it's really interesting because remember we were talking when you were building the early versions of Habitat yeah. and you showed Mark and I like, oh, look at this cool thing I'm building, right? Yeah. And I'm sure that was, well, I'm going to guess it was a fairly similar Experience to building the original version of Chef. It's exactly the same, yeah. Yeah, so so just tell like tell that story because I think it's interesting. And you know, if you think about the sort of you know new product discovery, feature discovery, yeah, process, and, the, and then the go to market effort that's required to like build the internal knowledge mm -hmm. and get your team fired up about this new thing that you're building. First, the other execs and the engineers, and then the you know whoever, however you approach that, and then marketing and sales, and then your you know front of the line customers. Like yeah, that whole there's a whole pipeline of people you have to kind of get aligned, 
and then like get them to do stuff and create <laughs> right, things. Believe and, you. Yeah. And like not think you're insane. Right. And so I, I think, yeah. it's, you know, early on, there's 20 people. It's a little bit easier to like, you know, line up everybody and row the same way. Yeah. You know, when you're you know, in your company, uh, size of chef now, like, I mean, talk about that process of bringing that product to market. Yeah. I mean, I think the risk in product development is always in, in seeing that your end to end thing is wrong. So, as engineers, we tend to focus on on the problem in layers. You know, we look at the bottom layer and we look at the middle and the top. You know, so you've got like, you know, the databases and the data model and all of that stuff. And then you have the front end and that's at the top. And so, depending on which kind of engineer you are, you either start with the front end or you start with the data model. And then you like build all the stuff in between. And then hopefully at the very end, you show it to someone and you're like, "Do you like my thing?" You know? And like your thing, maybe it takes you, even if you're being agile or whatever, you're doing sprints or whatever. Whatever. Like the truth is, you can't actually see the whole thing from the beginning to the end for maybe months or years, sure. right? In some cases. So you have no idea really how quickly if you're on or off. And so with Chef and with Habitat both, like the process that I went through was one where I would build a like a sketch of the whole thing. Later on, I met a guy, Jeff Patton, who talks about user story mapping, who has like a whole process for how to do this. I didn't know that. I wish that I did. It would have been so much better, especially trying to communicate with other people. But you know, what you would do is you would build a working version of whatever you thought was there as quickly as you could. And most of it was fake or not very good or not very flexible or certainly bad in terms of the code quality or whatever. But you could see it work end to end. So you know, with Chef, that was... The you know there was a working version of the Chef DSL that works exactly the way that it works now, in a couple of days, and like it didn't do a lot, <laughs> you know, like it didn't con- it didn't actually configure anything, but you could like write a little program, and I showed it to my co-founders, and I was like, ooh, what if it looked like this? What if it was a programming language and it like looked like this, and you had resources, and the, the syntax looked like this, and should it be a colon or an equal sign? And like you know you're having those conversations about the you know things that feel aesthetic, but but they're really the shape of the whole thing, right? And then you were like, well, okay, but we need like, you know, you had to package the recipes up so that you can put it together with the ingredients, like files and all of those things. And so that focusing in on on that end to end was was really important. And with Habitat, you know, and the benefit of hindsight, we did that again in an even more intense way. So like I had a working version of Habitat. If you go download Habitat right now, all of the core functionality in Habitat, I had a mock-up of that you could run on the command line in a week. You know, and like it wasn't the same as what's there now because it's had a lot of refactoring and a bunch of iteration. But I I spent months tweaking it a little bit, and then I would show people. You know, I would show you, or I would go show um, you know friends that worked at Nike, or I would show people who worked at Amazon, or I would show John Allspaw, or I would show whoever you know whoever was nearby. I'd be like, hey, come look at this thing I'm building, and what if it worked like this? And does this thing feel this way? And you know what you're doing is you're de-risking. Whether or not the final version of what you build was right, even though I knew that like what I what I was building was this really complicated system, you just didn't do any of the complicated parts until you were pretty sure that it was going to feel good, and that to me is is sort of how you think about building that product. And then when you talk about go to market and how to convince people, you know, at that point it's about how do you distill what feels good into a message someone needs to hear. And so sometimes that that what feels good about it, you know, what feels good about Habitat is if you're a software developer or an operations person who's had to manage the life cycle of your application. So, how do I build my application? How to put it in CI? How do I package it up? How do I deploy it into multiple places? What if I need to deploy it sometimes on my laptop because I'm doing iteration locally, but I also want to deploy it to Kubernetes in production uh, and bare metal sometimes too? Like, what do I do? What's that like? And Habitat takes that whole answer and goes, it's cool. You're just going to write a little plan and you're going to fill in basically a flowchart and then it pops out the other side and it works. And it feels dope. And so the go-to-market challenge for Habitat is how do I distill that problem? You know, How do I say to someone in a pithy way, like, hey, do you have a problem about managing the life cycle of your applications? Answer is yes. Hold my beer. You know, Do I have a deal for you? Right. And so... You know what happens first there is some people will agree with you, some number won't. Uh, if it's a good idea, I've never had a good idea where some people told me that was a bad idea. So like it's like a hundred percent hit rate where people were like, 
some of this is garbage. You shouldn't do it. Probably then, if everyone thinks it's a great idea, it's, it's like, not interesting. Yeah, or like it's yeah. already somebody's already built something that matters, or it's never going to get attention because yeah, it's like everyone's doing some version. Right. Of it. Somebody yeah. has to say to you, "This is not good." Yeah. Um, like everyone who ran Puppet, not everyone. There were a lot of people who saw what I built when I built Chef, and they were like. I'm so glad you built Chef. It's exactly what I want. There was a lot of other people who I thought were going to say that to me, who instead were like, "You are a horrible person. Like you are a bad human being for t- t- like doing this work." So anyway, I think about all of that coming together, and then you do a similar kind of iteration. You know, like you put it out in the world and you test it and you see what people say and how they respond and you tweak it and change it. The trick I think is to understand that 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 the refactoring of the message happens with the refactoring of the system too. So you're constantly refactoring the source code, you're also refactoring the message. You know, you're out in the world, you're experiencing whether it lands, whether what you said was what somebody needed to hear. And over time people get convinced. The other thing that happens though is that some number of people never get convinced or they start out convinced and then they lose faith. Mm-hmm. So the other thing that happens is any product worth having is a product that's hard to build and takes risks in its creation. And in that moment someone will lose faith between evidence that you were right and the work to create the thing. And in that moment, you have to not lose faith. Like you have to be the one that's like, you know what? Right or wrong, this is what we're doing. And like, I hope it works out because all the chips are in, you know? And like, I think that's a thing that people do wrong a lot, in particular in sort of the startup world, because you get into the idea of like a pivot where it's like, oh, it's not working, so we'll pivot. And it's like, well, what are you pivoting around precisely? Because like, I get it. You're pivoting. But like are you pivoting because you're impatient for the evidence? Cuz in that case like maybe you should just do more work and like be right. Turns out a lot of people will not like your thing and it's going to take a while and you're going to like push through and, and grind. And you got to refactor yeah. it and grind and, and like oh, a little different here, tweak yeah. there, right? Yeah. Especially if you're selling enterprise software. Right. Cuz you'll take it to someone and they'll be like I couldn't possibly use it. And you'll be like why? And they're like, well, cuz we use this random replacement for sudo on all our linux boxes and you're not allowed to deploy without it and so you're Ooh, like, that's wah, wah, weird. Wah. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, oh, well, I guess my idea was sucks. I'll pivot to that thing. And you're like, well, no, only one person ever cared. Like, right. that's not a good pivot, man. Don't pivot. So this is great. So you've new product, you're developing, you're creating it, you're talking to people, you're getting feedback, you're iterating yeah. on like what it actually does. You're doing a little hand waving in order to like convince people that like it does the hard things, maybe it doesn't do right away. Yeah. Uh, and then you're changing the message and you're delivering it further and further. So now that you like kind of have a fairly clear idea, right? Yep. You have Habitat, you know you're going to do it. product, it works. Right. Yeah. Because you're chef, right, and mm. you have enterprise customers, do you instantly say, okay, it has to meet all of the enterprise requirements? We I mean, you to... could try, but it won't. Okay. You know? So so how do you, is it the same iteration cycle you did for Chef One? It kind of like, was. sitting in your it, house. It, I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. That's exactly what it was. Really? And it's, I'm still doing it. So like, I'm going to go do it again two more times this year. I did it earlier this year. Like, I spent three weeks in the middle of America, in someone's house, being like, let's do some Habitat, brother. And like, we crocked it out, it was so good. Like, we were doing, so there was a team of 100 people that was doing some work, and we did it in two days with Habitat. And like, they've been working on it for months, months. And like, felt so good. Um, It's the best part of the job. Like, I like get on a plane, go to the place, sit in their house, do the work. Because you have basically the entire spectrum of how your product works and what it does and all the options and how you can tweak all the things, mm-hmm. you can go in there and like basically show them the path forward with your thing that maybe like they couldn't figure out how to get there. Right, they can't see. Yeah, they can't see. Yeah, you have the value of perspective. As an outsider, the number one thing you have is perspective. And so you bring that perspective to the customer and you're like, hey... Despite all of your documentation and everything you have that's out there and it's open source and they yeah. could, it's like they just it's hard for anyone to really grasp the full Yeah, and I mean it, again it comes back to the go to market. So sometimes you build a product and it just takes off. So like sometimes your Facebook or sure. your Docker. Sure. Right? Or even maybe Chef, to be honest. Like yeah. Chef was Docker once yeah. um, for a minute. And like uh, so was Puppet, you know, we probably like so sometimes you're that. Most of us aren't. You know, most of the time what we do is we build some software and there's someone who likes it and then you're like, oh, but I need 10 more. And you're like, but who are those people? And I don't know where, and you know, like it's, it's, you got to grind it out a little. And so part of doing that work is getting the references that will get you to the next level. So, you know, uh, Facebook is a good example of like, you know, all the work that got put into Facebook, you know, that consumed my company for a year, probably just like 
doing all the things you got to do to get Facebook to run Chef. Also, I have easily, easily tens of millions more dollars in revenue every year because I did that work at Facebook. Easily. Yeah. You know, not from Facebook. Facebook doesn't pay me. I mean, they do pay me, but they don't right. pay me a lot. But, you know, I got to use that logo. I got to talk about that experience. I got to talk about those customers. And those references were everything in getting to a place where you have the credibility of the next thing. So it's really just like, how can I find the first thing that gets me the next thing? You know, how did we get the credibility to raise money for Chef? Well, I built Zeus's infrastructure and iLike's infrastructure when they couldn't scale and the people that worked there couldn't figure it out, and we did. And so I could take that and I could be like, I know I'm good at this because I did it for these two people, you know? And it's just, you find the first one and you just keep, you keep pulling, you know? And so now, you know, I think what's interesting is that story, you did it once with Chef and that was, you know, obviously very successful. And you're doing it again with Habitat and sort of that process you described, very similar, right? Even though it's a, you know, yeah. the company is far bigger and there's mm-hmm. a lot more, lot more people in the company and yeah. product heads and VPs of everything, and then you you now have access to all these enterprise customers That's who better. will try yeah. your gear. It's a lot, it's a lot easier right to away. find those people to become references because I can just call up my own people who love me and be like, "Hey, do you want to do this crazy thing?" And like, that's a lot easier than like, you know, having to go to five conferences this year and like hunt. Because now you have the network of people who trust and believe. That yeah, I'm here on a podcast, right. and like you, like I wasn't like no one wanted to hear me. You know what I mean? Like ten years ago, I was a sister, I was team lead. You know, I ran a tiny consulting company with a bad logo, looked like keycaps, weird colors. Like, do you want to talk to me? You know, but like now you want to talk to me because I've like got all this experience and like there's all this stuff and there's all this evidence and I have fun stories, you know, but like that's all that all happened just from the work. Like, you, it sounds dumb, but like I can't underscore enough how much it's really just like every single day you do more work and you're like, okay, like I'm going to do more work today than I did yesterday. And how do I get more leverage out of the work I did yesterday to do better, more work or, you know? But what's interesting to me too, right, is you know thinking about those enterprise features. You said like you didn't introduce all of those right away into Habitat, and you sort of spent a little time to get the actual core product, right, the core business logic, right. Yeah, because and then, yep. In, you know, when you think about a lot of enterprises, there will be enterprises who are willing to accept your software without the enterprise features, mm. and you need to find them because in order to get into the enterprise, I have to be enterprise ready. Well, then I'm never going to get to the enterprise because, look, like role-based access control, software updating, um, licensing, like all that stuff is so complicated that without customers to tell you whether you're on the right path or the wrong path, you'll just spend forever noodling on some abstract craziness. Like, like there's an entire book, multiple books, written about the algorithm for Arbok, and like, man, you know, if everybody has to do that. Every time before we can ever get a piece of software in the door the first time, like we're done. But you know, could you go to one customer and be like, okay, in order for it to work, the must-have is that you can log in through Active Directory. No problem. Like that, I can do. You know, do I have to go all the way to the like to the completed framework that allows me to do policy-driven configuration for multiple IDPs? No. Um, that might be necessary first. to scale at the it's, enterprise. Th- exactly, right? That's what you're saying. yes, and, and scale different problem. And the the number one bad mistake I see people do all the time is premature scaling. Mm. Then in, in in software development and startup land, people all the time will say, "Well, we don't want to do it that way." And you're like, "Why not?" And they're like, "Well, because it won't scale." And I'm like, "Well, do you have? Is there a horde? Like, is there like a ma- is, is, Are they at the gates?" And they're like, "Well, no, we don't have any customers." I'm like, "Well, then who cares?" Don't worry about that. Like, call me when the horde's here. Like, first find me someone who cares, and then we can talk about those problems. And we use those moments to shut down the conversation and the possibility. So, you know, you get your five or 20 or however many people you have in your company, and you're talking about trying to go out and get this enterprise customer. And somebody says, well, it's not time to get the customer yet, because before we can get the customer, we need Arbok. And so then you spend another six months, you know, hoping the customer arrives, and like it's it's a self-inflicted wound. In a similar way, like in the enterprise, you get the opposite. You get the enterprise saying we could never possibly do whatever because usually team foobar says no. So a really common one would be we couldn't possibly run your software with auto updates turned on because firewalls, and because the network team won't allow it. And if you ask the question to those people, what is the name? of the network person who said to your face that you're not allowed to update software in the DMZ from the internet. What's their name? You will get the following response. 
I mean, it's not like one person. It's like it's like the network team. And you're like, yeah, yeah, I know, I hear you. Can you give me a name of a network person who would say that to my face? And I'm like, well, I mean, it's the network team. And you're like, yeah, I, I got you, I got you. Can we just like, I'm here all day. Could we, um, could we just take a walk to the network team and just ask, just say, hey, why can't we? And they'll be like, we've never done that before. And then you'll go, and it turns out that person doesn't exist. They've never existed. Or they did exist. They retired 10 years ago. We don't talk about it anymore. Like That happens all the time. And so most of the obstacles to your software getting in the door for one customer, not at scale, just the one customer, it's not actually an obstacle that you need to overcome. It's just you have to have enough ability to stay in the room and be like, okay, really? Like, Do we need the, we have to have it? Like I get that you need to, and you were shutting yourself down. But like, can we not shut ourselves down? And like, let's try to have nice things, and it it, it tends to work. I love that. So it's what's interesting is in those conversations. I mean, oftentimes people are using those requests as an excuse for why they don't want to buy your software, right? For why they don't want to implement your thing. Yeah. And if it's if they really do want it, and you're like, okay, well, you want it. Let's go talk to that team. Let's figure it out. And like, either they're gonna walk you over to that team or they don't want your software. Yeah, right? it turns out they don't even have to. So like, I think in the number of times, and I've, used, I've done this a lot now, the number of times where I have actually been brought to the team is zero times. Because it just like the whole thing folds like a house they, of cards. They like email somebody and it turns out like that isn't a big deal and they can get it done this time and it's not. Yeah, or they knew all along that it wasn't actually a thing they couldn't do, like, but they just never questioned it. Do you know what I mean? It was like yeah. it was like you, you know, if you move into a house and the walls were a color and nobody ever mentioned you could paint, you never think to yourself, why is the room gray? I hate gray rooms. You're just like gray rooms are the color of the rooms. And like it's just it's just how it is. And like they just, you know, people just go, we just as humans, we just sort of go through our lives doing what we do. And so as the outsider, as the person with perspective, like your part of the job is just flipping the perspective for someone and being like, well, what if what if it was like this instead of like that? Like, and you a- just you do that enough times and eventually you find someone who's like, yeah, you know, you're right. Like, that is what the room shouldn't be gray. Yeah. I I do want to update software in the DMs. You know what? It turns out that somebody painted that wall gray at some point. And you could just right? paint it a different and you color. Could paint it again. You so could just you yeah. could do whatever we want. This whole thing, even though you work for a company that was started by Thomas Edison, it turns out they built it human beings just like you just doing stuff every day made decisions they just made decisions we could we could make new ones yeah and turns out you have a lot more information today than they they ever did you have all of their aggregate perspective built up over all of this history and all we have to do is fun stuff and like just you know come on the fun stuff journey and like especially in that early product phase i have found that to be very effective because when you just go to people and you're like look is my problem your problem and if it is, let's be dope together. Like, let's just be awesome together. Uh, very few people are like, nah. I think it, it also matters if the thing you're suggesting is rational, right? It has you, to be if, good. If, 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 yeah, if the thing you're suggesting is like <laughs> a really bad decision, then or like, it's not going to oh, work. It like, obviously violates like That's right. their, you know, it's like, no, like we, we don't actually want to send all of our customer data and not to all, your you yeah. know, three person team. That right. like, turns out is a bad idea for us. Right. And not right? all customers are created equal. So, right. like, you know, that same conversation, you don't have that conversation with the folks at Facebook that way because they'll be like, we're Facebook and then you're out. You know, so like at Facebook, you have to be like, okay, tell me more about Facebook. Tell me about what I can do to get this in here. Talk me, tell great. me more about your scale problems. Tell right. me more about the way your infrastructure works. Let me tell, and then let me map that to how my stuff works and figure out if I can solve, if I can help you solve your problem. So sometimes it's not so much you telling someone how to better solve their problem because you're not, sometimes it's you literally being like, I, I just need, I need more of your DNA to understand what to do. Right. So I like this. So there's, there's, one part, which is get in the door and sit with the customer to really understand the business problem and how you can solve it and create something that like will be a story that you can tell and deliver to everyone else. Yep. And then the next part is, okay, now once you have this great thing that everybody wants, figure out what rules can be broken and what things 
can help you if you embrace and you're like, well, you, you push back on that DMG thing and they said, no, that is a requirement. It's going to be a hard requirement at every right. other bank you work with. And so you note that then as like a- Got to go uh, do it. Got to go do it. So it's, right? just, it's just what it was, just table stakes now. So a good example is um, if you want to sell to the federal government at some point, the uh, US federal government, at some point you will need to do air gaps because there are actual air gaps where like a guy or a lady- like takes a USB drive or a CD-ROM or a DVD or whatever, and they go through a trap with like gas in the ceiling and guns, and they put it on a network that's not connected to the world. It's just what happens. And so, like, you know, you could try all day long to convince them that they should change their perspective, and also they're not changing their perspective. Describe what an air gap network is. I mean, that's a great description of how you get software in there. But like, why would someone run an air gap network? Oh, What's the point? Uh, sure, because what you're doing is it's a it's a hard security barrier, right? You're saying that we can we'll do physical security and and maybe even digital security on the media that you walk through to ensure that what goes inside of the air gap system is what we want and nothing we don't. Um, so, so that way you have access to all this compute and all this storage, but you don't have to have it. But you it. could never talk to the internet. Never talk to the internet. You could li- not just the internet. You could never talk to another system that's outside the air gap, right? So sometimes you would see those systems on, um, you could find them in closed systems in like a car. You know, like if you were building a hardened car, that would be good to have a network that isn't connected to a network, for example. Sure. But a good example would be, you know, if you're like, let's say you're a three-letter government agency that investigates crime or does intelligence gathering or whatever, like you would probably have an air gap, you know? And it's hard to access your multi-tenant SaaS application. It's impossible. <laughs> it's impossible to access your multi-tenant SaaS application. And so, you know, even in those air gap things, so like a you know, a good example of some of the difficult problems you face in, in enterprise software is it's easy to get sort of led into a trap that tells you that what that means is that the enterprise will take whatever version of the software they take and they'll hold it forever. You know, like I'm going to run version one forever because it's inside the air gap. But that's terrible, both for the customer and for you. So, like, you don't, you can't move them forward. It's not sticky. Eventually, they'll hate your product. And you'll be like, well, if you just upgrade to the new one, it would be better. And they're like, I can't upgrade to the new one because it's too hard. And so you just wind up in this like aerobarous loop of, of, of hurt. Instead, you sort of have to think about a problem like, how do I install software as a user-facing problem, a customer-facing problem, where you say, look, what's the experience I would need all of the users of my software in the enterprise to have that would make them feel like this software is the best software that they've ever touched? And so one good example there would be anytime they upgrade your software, it'll work no matter what version of your software they started out with. So I don't know what the timing is of the person with the DVD walking through the air gap. What I know is it went through one time and got working because it's still there. And I know that somebody else someday, hopefully, God willing, will go through that same man trap in order to put my software on that network again. And when that happens, it should just work. And if it doesn't just work, it's going to be really, really, really hard to fix because the odds that anybody who works for you can go through that man trap remarkably low. So like we're in California and weed is legal. So I don't know. Do you have a security clearance? Do you live in California? Did you put weed in your face? If so, you don't have security clearance anymore or you lied, at which point you shouldn't have security clearance. And uh, so which person who works for your company can walk through the little thing? And you're like, no one. You know, the answer is nobody. And so you know, it's like you're fixing it through a straw. So you know, the choices you have there are often what happens is you're making a decision between the customer's comfort and your engineering difficulty. It's much harder to build a system that can always be upgraded forever in place than it is to say that you have like major versions that break the installation process, right? Like as soon as you say you can break the installation process, as an engineer, you're like, whew, ah, I won't have to go through this hard refactor. I'll just build a new one and be like, sorry, it's a new upgrade. You gotta, we'll do a data migration. And so like, you know, fine, great, makes sense. But once you get to a place where you have those customers with that shape, it doesn't work anymore. And it turns out that it's also better, it's a better user experience, you know, because everybody wants to update the software. And what that also implies is that you're updating more frequently because it's safe to update, because it has to be safe to update, because if it wasn't safe to update, the bad update would ruin the air gap. So, okay, it has to always be safe to update, and it can never break. So we have to do it all the time. So we have to deploy to our enterprise customers not once every year, but every day. And some number of them won't, and some will, but you know, 
you got to build it that way. Because if you don't, then it's worse for your customers and it's worse for you. But it's there's there's a bunch of those interesting little traps sort of hiding in enterprise software development. I think. So do you let your end customer decide? When they update, do you have a window of support that you'll offer them for? Hey, if you have the last three, one of the last three versions will support it, but you got to upgrade to the last three versions if you want to get support. Or how do you how do you contract that out? For me, I would just say that you support any version of the product that has ever existed to the latest. What I would never let you do is jump to a version in, of your choice. So you can go from wherever you are to whatever the goods is, the new stuff. But there's no moment where you get to say, no, 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 I want to install version 5572, hmm. not 5573. You're like, nap, we're on five, we've moved on. We're in 5573 land now. You can choose what day. Do you know what I mean? Like you can pick that today is the day that we're going to update the software, which means that, look, in practice, of course, they might get 5572 because they burned it on a DVD and they had to walk it through the thing and we've edited it. Fine. But, you know, there's always an exception to the rule. But but conceptually, you always want to move for that, which also in contract land is simpler. So what you say is, look, I, great. As long as my, as long as this is software, I continue to support at all. Then I will continue to ship you updates. So, what are some other features and challenges that you think that you know, as as an early year stage enterprise software company that I'm coming to market? What are the things that I'm going to stumble on? What am I going to, you know, hit that you're like, ooh, watch out for. That feature, that request, or that piece. Yeah, I mean, definitely software updating. So it's a moment where your customers will be wrong. So what they'll tell you is everything I just said was garbage, and they want you to do none of it. (laughs) So what the customer will say if you ask them is, "We want to vet a specific version and keep it forever and move when we want." That's what they'll say. But the answer to that's no. It's a worse experience for the customer. It's worse for you. Don't do it. Uh, Role-based access control is another. So they'll want to be able to set rules about who can do what with your software and and how and they'll want that to integrate with their existing systems of record about the identity of the people who are doing it or the groups that they're allowing or those things is like you're going to hit that and, um, and how do you implement that do you think about like every crud action that can be taken and then implementing a a check to see if they have the permission to do that create or that I think it really update. depends on the application. So okay. I think it's hard to say at like the level of like every CRUD endpoint or whatever. I mean, you can do that, and that might be the right thing to do. It depends on the product. I think it's important, especially with stuff like access control, to think about the. It's one of the rare moments where the primitive matters. You know, we're thinking about what is the unit of control. Like, what are the actors in my system? What are the things those actors can do to other things or to themselves? Who's allowed to make those changes? Like. Understanding the landscape of what people can express is a deep requirement of building the right system because it, it may turn out that you don't actually want like classic role-based access control. There's another case of if you go to the enterprise and you ask for the feature, what they'll say is, I want role-based access control. And there's like a book and you can buy it and in there is the algorithm for role-based access control and you'd be like, ugh, that looks hard. And it is. But you might also be able to just do like I am. You know, you might be able to do a completely different model that gets you um, that's much more flexible about the definition of actors and what they can do and granting permissions and controls. But if you ask the customer, "Hey, customer, will you accept an IAM system or an RBAC system?" They'll be like, "I want RBAC," and you'll be like, "Why?" And they'll be like, "Well, because that's that's what enterprise-ready software does. It has RBAC." So I think there's a the trap you get into. You have to provide the functionality, the way for someone to express the control. But you don't necessarily have to tie your implementation to their desires. Can you just dive like a little bit into the nuance and the difference between IAM and RBAC? Sure. So, like in a traditional RBAC system, you would express and you would have some actor that's going to take an action on some object, right? Uh, and I'm going to vet those things, and then I put those actors into roles. So I say these are all the people who are administrators, sure. and then I can assign that role. To an object and some actions, so I can say these people can do this with these things, and then maybe I build groups uh, of those objects that I can take actions upon. And so then, you know, I'm 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 using I'm saying that you by giving you access to the role in the role-based access control. Now that role grants you privileges across whatever thing you want to go through. Right. The difference between that and something like I am is mostly the interface. So like if you think about how you define what an object is. Like, you know, an IM would build like a URI kind of. There's like an identifier that is the string of, you know, it's a computer that is an EC2 that's running in the US East one that's a medium 
that's tagged poopy pants or whatever. And that's the identifier of my object. And when I write a rule to check it, all the rules express is that identifier. So if I wanted to write a rule that was all servers in data center foo, Grant has access to, all I would have to do is say data center colon foo splat. And then everything that matches the string after that, you have access to. But I never had to like, I didn't have to know in advance what the things were that I was going to talk about. Do you see what I mean? I had a flexible rules engine that would take an arbitrary set of data and apply a yes or no answer to that arbitrary thing. Whereas in classic role-based access control, you know what every object is and you define rules for each of the things you knew about in advance. Whereas in I am, I don't know what they were, and I'm just building you this string that I can do crazy matching and stuff on and pop out the other side with yes or no questions. So in role-based access control, how do you introduce new objects if it's a new actor type? You can think of it as like a new type in a type system, right? Each one's distinct and a little heavyweight to add. And then there's some type of like default that you roll out and your customers. Right. You're like, and here's the default set of rules that apply to these kinds of objects. Right, exactly. And you, as an end customer, can't predefine what your defaults would be based on a I mean, similar. Maybe you could, but now you can think about how complex a role-based access control system is. Because sure. if I allow you to create generic, if I want the generic thing that I get out of I am, well, now I have to like provide an interface that allows a customer to find a new object type, which then defines the new actions that that can happen, and like it gets really heavyweight. Whereas in I am, it's just like I don't know, give me a URN for the object and a URN for the actor, and I can pattern match on those things, and then I'll give you a yes or no answer. And is there some type of like regular expression that's yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, AWS uses IAM rules, right. for example. Yeah, and so I mean that's another thing too. I think which is really important. And when I ended up working with you know Mark to build features and replicate it, and for our you know our previous company that were kind of enterprise features. Yep. A lot of what we did is we spent time looking at other applications that we thought did a great job of implementing role-based access control or audit logging or something, right? Yep. And so. You know, one, do you draw inspiration in the same way? But when you see, like, you know, hey, Google did this, you know, amazingly great yeah, version yeah. of an audit log. Like, I should copy that and make yeah, sure that absolutely, yeah, yeah, sort of relentlessly, and, especially and, for stuff like that where I, I, I like I like the product concept of a delighter. So a delighter is is when there's a feature that exists that you never would have asked for, but once you have it, you'll never give it up. So one good one for me was in GitHub. As soon as I realized I could put like a cat picture as a response to a code review request, I was in for life. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm never going to use a system that doesn't allow me to do that. So Garrett, I enjoy much more objectively as a code review system than GitHub. Like I would much rather use Garrett. I think I'm in the minority, but it's real for me. Except no cat pictures in mm-hmm. Garrett. I'm not allowed to do cat pictures because it's serious business over in Garrett land. And so even though I prefer Garrett's workflow and everything about it, I will never use Garrett because I need that cat picture. And that is a delighter. You could have interviewed me till I died and been like, what's the feature we should add to code review? And I would have come up with everything except cat pictures. That's a delighter. And so for me, when I'm looking at like a lot of those systems, there's the table stakes thing. It's just like, you know, can you do access control? Arbok, I am, who cares? Whatever it is. Do you have one? If the answer is yes, then you you know checkbox ticked. But don't you think there can um, be a delighter in like how it, you implement that? Yeah, like, but it could be sexy, a delighter. Like, you it know, could be beautiful. Yeah. And so then it's like, okay, well, what would make it beautiful? Like, what would make it a delighter? And that I'm always on the lookout for that. I'm always on the lookout for the like, oh, it was this piece that made this experience worth having. And I find those sometimes in so- other software. Usually, you can find them in uh, lots of other places in your life too. Like. Sometimes in non-delighters can give you good ideas about what never to do, like waiting in line without any kind of awareness around how long it's going to take. Sure, that's never, a good ex- that's a good example. Never um, let your product. You know the most that. recent one. Amazon got into healthcare, right? And uh, I went to the doctor, and every time I go to the doctor, I get the same letter from Aetna, and the letter says, "Hey, could you fill out this piece of paper and mail it back to me to confirm that you haven't gotten other insurance?" between the last time you went to the doctor and now. And I'm like, no. I'm never filling that fucking piece of paper out. I'm never going to do it. You sent me a self-addressed stamped envelope. Still not going to do it. No desire to do it. And you know what company will never, ever, ever, ever send me a self-addressed stamped envelope to double check that I don't have insurance cover from somewhere else? Chef. Amazon.com. <laughs> Amazon.com. Never, ever. They're never going to do it. 
And Aetna will be stunned. They'll be like, but we're such, their doctor network's bigger. Everything's better. And people, they'll be like, why would you want Amazon.com for healthcare? And the answer is, I'm never going to fill out that piece of paper. That's it. That's all it is. And it's that simple little delighter. They will remove that tiny little stupid thing and they will disrupt a trillion dollar market. And it'll be like, oh my God, they're so smart. And it's like, nah, they just hate fucking letters. Yeah. So do you. Like, Take out the little things that just annoy and terrify you about yeah. like all the worst things and make sure your products and things never have those. Yeah, we'll just try not to. And like <clears throat> one of the things that I see a bunch on teams that are building enterprise software, they get weird about refactoring a little bit sometimes in a similar way. Like, you know, the system gets big or complex or enterprise ready, you know? And you're like, oh, I don't I don't want to change how that system works, even if it hurts a little, because it has to be there because it's the enterprise readiness system. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, well, no, it doesn't have to hurt. Like it doesn't have to suck. It has to be there, yes. Yeah. It doesn't have to suck. I think that's one of my goals in my life is to help people build enterprise software that doesn't suck. I think that is one of the goals in your life. And for just sure. Make it feel amazing and easy and like all the attention was paid to build something that, because you know that someone else is going to use it, right? Right. It doesn't matter if it's like the one person at Facebook that had to configure that piece of your application. Right. Like somebody has to suffer through this. Right. And like, why make them suffer? Why not make their life like? Why not make it? Why not make delightful? it great? Well, and like, I mean, to me, that's the core. Like, not to make it a replicated pitch or whatever, but like, that's the core thesis of replicated. Is like, look, you you should be able to focus on your application. And we can focus on making the experience of it being enterprise ready being delightful. And so like we'll bring the delight on those things and you focus on your core application and like then it's gonna be easier for you to sort of go through this journey, which I love about you. Like I think it's a legitimate like it's a deeply needed use case that just everybody suffers. And like it's it's anything that decreases that suffering, I'm in. Well, thank you. Yeah, we uh we try to decrease the suffering of software vendors all over the world. So, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Cool, Adam, you've been amazing. The one last thing that I really want to do yes. is I want to have you just pitch Chef for five minutes. Just tell me all the amazing things and why like, I should use your product and just go through whatever pitch you normally do and just like, let's hear it. Okay. What Chef exists to do is to help software engineers, systems administrators, DevOps engineers, security people, whoever you are. You know, Over time, our objective has really become that we want to help the enterprise go through this transition from where they're learning to be technology companies. They're learning how to harness technology. They're learning how to build and run and manage their organizations in a way that allows them to adapt to the technology and the pace of change that is is the status quo now in the world. And that journey to me is is it's technology and it's humans, all sort of at the same time. And so a lot of what we do is go out in the world, like we've been talking about on this podcast, and finding a way to understand more about more people's experiences and more of the problems that happen in the enterprise. And then we go build technology that solves those problems in ways that hopefully people didn't expect, you know, that when they that, that are delightful, that when they use it, they're like, wow, I didn't even know that what I needed was for the world to work this way. But once it worked this way, I was like, boo, you know, the light bulb went off and all of a sudden, like, I felt like I could unlock all of this all of this stuff that was sort of latent inside me, you know. Um, I, I I go to work every day and I do the thing that I do, and what I want is to be great. But what's in my way is a bunch of garbage. And so Chef exists to help those people figure out uh, how to put that garbage down and how to get better at that motion. We do it with a couple of different pieces of software. So one is Chef, which is a configuration management system. So you know, you write code that describes how a bunch of servers should work, and when you run it, it checks to see if they work the way you said, and if it didn't, we figure out how to fix it, is the nutshell version. We have a security compliance product called Inspec, where you can write software tests that describe your compliance policy. So rather than having like a PDF that is your compliance policy, and then some kind of automation that tells you whether you're compliant, if you have that at all, most people don't. Most people just have a, the PDF and then a human who does stuff. It's like software testing and that compliance PDF had a baby. And so you can run the software and the software will spit out the same report that you would have gotten from an auditor that tells you whether uh, you're secure and compliant. And we built that product because when we were doing configuration management in the large enterprise and trying to help people ship software faster and build their infrastructure better, the biggest blocker to our progress was whether or not you could prove that you were still compliant at speed. right? So now we have a security compliance product that helps you prove that you can do that at speed. And then we built a product called Habitat. And what Habitat does 
is it looks at the evolution over the last decade of how we build infrastructure and how we build applications, and it sort of turns it on its head and says, you know, historically we've thought about this from the point of view of infrastructure. We've said, hey, I've got a platform, I've got Kubernetes, or I've got VMware, or I've got OpenStack, or I've got, you know, whatever, Chef. And I'm going to use that platform to run all of my junk, and then I will have nice things. And what we have learned is that it doesn't really work out that way because the application itself was what we cared about. And the life cycle of the application from how it's built, how do developers use it, how do you run it on your laptop, how does it go into production, what different environments does it run in, what operating systems does it run on, what dependencies does it have, how does it do service discovery, how, does, how do we reconfigure it, what happens if it goes down, can it do clustering, what are the topologies, all of those questions about how the applications work, we pushed all the answers into infrastructure. Right? We said none of those are the application's concern, it's actually the infrastructure's concern. And with Habitat, we flipped it over and we said actually all of that is the application's problem, and the infrastructure's problem is just getting the thing running. If you can get to a place where the application can start, that should be the only thing you ever have to worry about ever again in terms of its life cycle. And that's what Habitat does. Because our biggest problem, after we solved the compliance problem and the infrastructure problem, was, man, your application teams are not very good at getting their software to move left to right in that continuous delivery pipeline. They're not very good at even figuring out how to build the software in the first place to get an artifact you could deploy. Or they're not very good at building the container. Or they can build a container, but the container only runs in one environment. So now we build five containers that are slightly different for each environment that we ever want to run in, but then our tests aren't the same, and so that's a bummer. And so like on and on and on and on and on. So Habitat takes that problem and boils it down to a really simple method of saying, this is how I build my application. This is what's configurable about it. This is the things it needs to know about the other systems it depends upon and relies on, and allows you to just declare that at runtime and manage this lifecycle. That's Chef. That's amazing. And right this second, if you like the last bit of the Habitat story, like one of the things I do is I get on planes and I sit in people's houses and I do that for you. And like, if you want me to do that, I'm easy to find. That's amazing. Thanks. Adam, this was incredible. Thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just to learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. 